Well, good morning once again. My name is Ryan, and uh, it's my privilege this morning to open up God's Word with you in this new year. Just a couple updates before we get to our passage in, uh, in Mark 9. First of all, you might remember if you were with us back in December, way back in December of last year, we were sharing with you some of our year-end needs financially. We shared with you about the second or third week in December that um, uh, we were still about a million dollars short of our budgeted giving, and, uh, and I'm pleased to say you all answered that call and uh, made up mo- most, if not all, of that shortfall. We are still about $200,000 behind budgeted giving, but uh, you generously uh, gave toward the end of the year, and I just want to say thank you. I also hope that's in- as encouraging to you as it is to me, um, not just because it helps us start the year uh, on, on, more, on a more healthy and sound financial footing, but also because it's a reminder that uh, grace really does motivate us to give, that the reason that we give, not just financially, but of our time and opening up our homes and our tables to neighbors and friends uh, and to give ourselves to the work of the Lord is because he has given so much to us. And so uh, I'm grateful for uh, your careful and thoughtful and generous response to that call. I thought I would give you that update. Also, another update, if you were here, now we're going way back to this time last year, uh, almost, almost to the day a year ago, it was actually January 9th of last year, I stepped into this pulpit for the first time as your senior pastor. And uh, some of you have asked me if I still think that was a good idea. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. I'll be honest with you. Without hesitation, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Um, This has been an amazing year. In many ways, I've just kind of had a front row seat to what the Lord is doing and continues to do through this church. Uh, I I will list a few things, but I could go on. I mean, uh, this past spring, we celebrated a three-year birthday for our Fairfax site. Uh, This September, we got folks from Reston watching. They're going to give themselves a cheer right now, I'm sure. In Reston, we launched Reston just a few months ago. Uh, Both of those are being led ably by Rob and JT, respectively. Um, The Lord is blessing those efforts. We celebrated 30 years with Romanian Christian Enterprises this year, a ministry that started in this church, along with a great anniversary for Oak Seed Ministries, another ministry that was started decades ago by folks in this church. Uh, We have sent folks all over the world. We're sending out another team to Tanzania uh, in just a few days. Um, We continue to see the Lord do amazing things in people's lives and through you uh, in the lives of folks in this area and around the world. And I mean, I could keep going on with all the other things, all the other wonderful ways we've seen God's hand at work. But it's been a privilege to do that. And, uh, and I would just say to you, I would add to my comments a year ago, um, if you remember, it was a very snowy day. And uh, we had some inclement weather on my first Sunday, which I, you know, I like to spice it up and keep you on your toes. And so we started that way. And I thank you for welcoming my family warmly. And I would just add, um, uh, you know, a year later, I will say what I could have said then, but I didn't have any evidence for it. But now I have evidence for it. Uh, I love being your pastor. I love being your pastor. Uh, it is, uh, thank you. Um, 
might, you might want to wait till after the sermon to, to, to say that. But, um, but I'll also say, you know, it is, uh, it, anybody who opens God's word does so with, with fear and trembling um, before God's people. But I will say it is a humble privilege to be able to uh, preach the gospel to you every every Sunday that I'm here to, to do so. And um, we get to do it again today out of the Gospel of Mark. Think about what we covered last year. First Peter, First Corinthians 5, uh, 15, Proverbs, most of it, some of it. Uh, half of the Gospel of Mark. And, um, and so if you're just, if you're like me and you're just like reorienting, reorienting yourself to being in the Gospel of Mark, let me remind you where we've been. Pastor Terrence preached on chapter 8 last week. It's a pivotal chapter because you really can think of Mark in two parts, chapters 1 through 8, 9 to the end of the book, 9 through 16. 1 through 8 is really Mark saying, Jesus is who he says he is. He is the king. And let me show you one after another, this demonstration of Jesus's authority over disease, over the powers of darkness, even over death. It's like one after another, after another. And so when we talk about following the king, especially in those first eight chapters, you can imagine the disciples are following Jesus and they're seeing Jesus getting, getting W after W after W, right? And they're thinking, man, following Jesus is sweet, like we picked the winning team or he picked us, doesn't matter. Following Jesus is going to be like basically the victory lap of life. Like if this is who he is, if he's this powerful and, and has this much authority, what could possibly go wrong? What's going to keep us from being in Jerusalem, being with the man, ushering in the kingdom of God, not just now, but forever? I mean, think about how awesome that must have felt. Stressful? Sure. Confrontation, yes, but a pathway to glory. And then, as Terrence pointed out last week, Jesus turns around and says, and by the way, if you follow me, you're going to lose everything. If you follow me, he says, you have to take up your cross and follow me. If you follow me, you have to lose your life to save it. If you follow me, this path is not the path of one successive victory after another. It is the path of loss. And the first thing you're going to lose is having it your way every day because your life is no longer your own. You have signed away the rights to your life. Your preferences are no longer at the top of the list. Your will, your agenda is no longer the agenda of your life. And you can imagine his disciples saying, that, 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 what? And Jesus, you're going where? To the cross? To suffer and die? This path of power ends in you being overpowered? No. And the rest of the book is Jesus explaining how that pathway of the cross-formed life, following Jesus in that way, is actually what our hearts long for the most. Now, if you're anything like me, you hear Jesus say all these things in chapter 8, at the end of chapter 8. You can go back and listen to Terrence's sermon. He unpacks this so well. But the bottom line is Jesus is laying out for us now a life of suffering and self-denial and loss for the sake of love. And the first question, if I'm honest, the first question I ask is, is it worth it? 
If you've never asked that question, is following Jesus worth it? You're not listening to what Jesus is saying. Peter's asking that question. I mean, he wears his emotions on his sleeve, as we see again in this passage. So we know he's asking that question. If I'm asking that question, Peter's asking that question. I suspect that one time in your life, if not right now, you have asked the question, is it worth everything I have to lose in order to follow Jesus? Jesus, in his kindness, answers that question right away. But he doesn't answer it with Sermon on the Mount 2.0. I mean, with, isn't that kind of what we would do, parents? Isn't that what we do in these critical, teachable moments? It's like, all right, let's sit down and let's have a 30-minute conversation. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't say, all right, let me talk to you about what this kind of life looks like. What Jesus does is completely unexpected. He gives his disciples and us a glimpse of why it's worth it because he gives us a glimpse of his glory. Notice how Jesus connects what happens in the transfiguration with the conversation that just happened a moment before. Verse one of chapter nine, he turns to his disciples and says, truly I say to you, which is Jesus' way of saying, if you haven't listened yet, you need to listen now. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, Biblical scholars debate exactly what that means. I would propose, and many propose, that Jesus is here talking about what's about to happen, that there are some folks, disciples that he's looking at right now who are going to see the king in all of his power. And that's why Mark says right after that, and after six days, he's linking all of these things to say what Jesus said that there will, there will be some who will see the king in all of his power is happening right here. And it's exactly what they needed. It's exactly what we needed when we find ourselves in life, in those points in life when we're asking ourselves, is it really worth it? Let me pray for us uh, as we open God's word that he'd help us understand and apply this passage to our lives. Lord, we do come to you, to your book as an open book, We know that you know us. We know that there's nothing we can hide from you. We know that you know us better than we know ourselves. Um, Lord, you know the ways in which we would rather promote ourselves than deny ourselves, that we'd rather hold on tightly with control to everything and everyone in our lives when you invite us to come to you and to rest in you. Lord, we know that, um, that left to ourselves, we would seek to gain the whole world and forfeit our souls. We'd do it in a heartbeat. But Lord, we ask even today that you would show us that the longings of our hearts can only be satisfied outside the walls of this world. And we pray, Lord, that you would do it by your word, through your spirit, as you have done it through the generations throughout time. Do it again now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, Jesus is speaking a language you know. In fact, it's a language you are fluent in. It is the language of glory. Let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible tells us that as those who are made in God's image for God's glory, there is an innate longing within the human heart to experience glory. And there is no off switch. Uh, you see it just in, in the, the lengths you are willing to go to and the price you are willing to pay to get a firsthand experience of glory. So some of us are more than willing to fly across the ocean 
in order to take a long journey to a museum somewhere in Europe and stand in a long line, obnoxiously long line, just to lay our eyes on the Mona Lisa. Even though you could pull up an image of the Mona Lisa on your phone right now. Some of you are doing it right now. Your Mona Lisa, what is that? Oh, okay, cool. But you want to see it in person because there's something about the shimmering experience of being in the presence of that sort of beauty. Others of us are willing to pack up the whole family in a minivan and drive all the way down to Florida and put on a goofy hat and stand in line for, again, an obnoxiously long amount of time, two or three hours, just to have the chance to ride Star Wars, Resistance to the Empire, what, you know, whatever it is, right? Or the Toy Story ride or whatever it is at Disney World that, that, that you want to experience more than anything in the world. And before you laugh at those people, someday you may be those people, first of all, I just want to point that out. But before you laugh at those people, I just want you to think about how crazy it was that you drove as far as you did at that time of night just to go see your college boyfriend or girlfriend. Or, uh, or how much you paid to go to that fancy restaurant, and as every course came out and the plates got progressively smaller, you kept thinking to yourself, what is happening right now? What have I gotten myself into? Or how much you're willing to pay to go to the Final Four game when your team finally makes it to the Final Four? Or what you're willing to give up at work, you know, how much work you're willing to put aside and endure when you get back just to go skiing in the Rockies or mountain biking in Utah, or skydiving in California, or whatever it is that draws your heart to that experience of glory, you do all of those things, and you're willing to shell out that money and experience all that hardship for one reason and one reason alone, because it's worth it. In your mind, it's worth it. And that's not a fluke. That's because you're a human being. It's because you're made in the image of God. It's because you are made to worship glory, to celebrate it, to sacrifice for it, and there is no off switch. You are, by nature, a glory seeker. And so, when Jesus gives us a glimpse of his glory, he is speaking the language you live in, speak, think, dream in. He is speaking the language of glory. But what he is telling us is this, that the longing inside of your heart, what C.S. Lewis calls the inconsolable secret that we don't talk about, is that the longing of your heart cannot be satisfied within the walls of this world. It is a longing for the glory of God. And so what does God do? He brings his glory to you in the person of Jesus. And just in case we miss it, just in case we get through this entire part of the gospel and we're like, I'm not really sure that Jesus is the one my heart longs for. We have this moment of the transfiguration when Jesus pulls back the curtain and we see who he truly is. And when we do, we come to two realizations. Jesus and only Jesus is glorious enough to bear the weight of your worship and Jesus, and only Jesus, is glorious enough to bear the weight of your hope. Mark doesn't just report the facts of this story. In fact, this account shows up in three of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke all tell this story in their own way. Um, they all have their 
own way of packaging it, but what, what I want you to notice about Mark's presentation is Mark, in his economical style, raises expectations the entire way through. Let me explain what I mean by that. When he talks about Jesus being, being able to bear the weight of your worship, he starts by telling us where this happened. Verse 2, James, Peter, James, and John were led up, were led by Jesus up on a high mountain by themselves. All right. If you're Peter, James, or John, and you were raised in a good Jewish home, and you went to Hebrew school, and you had a bar mitzvah, and you learned the Torah, and you're steeped in the Old Testament, high mountain, that's a clue. Something's about to happen. Because in the Old Testament, when God shows up in his glory, it's not always the case, but often it's the case, it's happening on a high mountain. The, the first example and probably the most famous example is the story of Moses. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he says to God, show me your glory. Or uh, Elijah, the prophet Elijah has this showdown of glory between the true and living God and the prophets of Baal on Mar Mount Carmel. It's no coincidence that Moses and Elijah both show up in this story. They are, they are both men who were seeking God's glory manifested on a high mountain. And lo and behold, by the way, how amazing in it is it that Moses' prayer to see the glory of God is fulfilled in this moment when he is gazing into the face of Christ himself. So this already is raising expectation, like something is about to go down. And what is it? What is it that they saw? Verse 3, Verse two, he's transfigured before them, and then Mark gives his explanation of what that looked like, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It's an interesting choice of metaphor, but it's really picking up on the way in which the Bible will often describe the glory of God, something that we can't quite get our arms and our heads around, but, but we have an approximation of it. So, in places like Ezekiel chapter 1, if you've never read Ezekiel chapter 1, it's a wild and weird chapter, but it's this amazing portrayal of the glory of God. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of the throne room of God, and he tells us that when he saw the throne room of God, he saw a man who looked like glowing fire or glowing metal as if of fire. He saw a man on fire. It's also true in the New Testament. When you read the Apostle Paul giving his testimony, which he does several times in the book of Acts, when he gets to that point where Jesus shows up and knocks him off his high horse, the description he gives goes something like this, and a blinding light, or in one case he says, a light brighter than the, sh than the sun shone around me. Or Mark has his own take. He says it, Jesus in that moment, it was like someone bleached his clothes whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. This is what I want you to notice about all three of those examples, and, and we could go on, but I won't. All of them resort to metaphor because all of them can only approximate what it's like to be in the presence of God's glory. It's like fire, but brighter. It's like the sun, but brighter. It's, it's like white clothes, bleached white, but even more intense than that. And that is because the glory that's being experienced here is out of this world glory. It's the glory of God 
coming into the presence of creatures who were made for that glory. That's what they saw. Thirdly, look at what they heard. Verse 7, besides you know, Peter's ramblings, which we'll get to in a second, um, they hear this voice thundering from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, some of you have heard that so many times before, this doesn't sound unusual to you anymore or unexpected, but this is unexpected. The voice doesn't say, this is my messenger, listen to him. It doesn't say, this is your master, bow before him and listen to him. It's, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This is God the Father endorsing the son as the one who is the king. We learned something this this week about Capitol Hill and the importance of endorsements or a lack thereof. Uh, This is the endorsements of endorsements. This is the father saying, this is my son whom I love. He is the apple of my eye. He is the most precious to me. And, And I'm giving him to you and you need to listen to him. Sidebar question. Uh, someone asked me this question a long time ago, and I've never been able to get it out of my mind. It occurred to me again as I was looking at this passage. When was the last time you obeyed Jesus simply because you love him? When was the last time you were in the midst of temptation and you said to Jesus, Jesus, I want to do this more than you, well, you know as, you know as well as I do how much I want to go in this direction, but I'm not going to do that for one reason alone, because I love you so much. Or, Jesus, you know, I don't want to go do this. I don't want to go say this to this person. I don't want to step into this conversation because I know how long that's going to take. Um, you know I don't want to do it, but I'm going to say yes because I love you. Not because I have to, not because I feel obligated, not because I feel like you're going to get me if I don't, but simply because I love you that much. End of sidebar, back to the plot. Mark could not be saying this more boldly. In bold, bright letters, this is what Mark is saying by putting these pieces together, where they were, what they saw, what they heard. He is saying to you, here is the glory you long for. You will not find it anywhere else. And the reason I phrase it that way is because that's not the only time you're going to hear that promise. You hear that promise every single day of your life. The world makes that promise every single day of of your life. It tells you, here's where you find it. Like, that longing inside of you for glory, you just, all you need is more followers, more control, more power, more pleasure, more relationships, And when you have it, you will experience what your heart desires. And what Mark is reminding us here is those idols, those false gods that make that promise, they disappoint you every single time. They cannot bear the weight of your worship. If you make anything else other than the living God the center of your life, you will find that center, that God, that idol will disappoint you every single time. It makes promises 
it cannot deliver on. But Jesus, Jesus can deliver. And when you make him the center of your life, rather than robbing you of life, he will give you life in abundance. Let's talk about Peter for just a second. Uh, Peter's suggestion to camp out on the mountain, it's cute, really. Um, Isn't it good to know, uh, some of you will appreciate this more than others, that there's at least one verbal processor in the Bible. Um, We think that Mark got most of his information from Peter. And so one of the remarkable things when you read through the Gospel of Mark, when you find this these comments, you know, almost throwaway comments about Peter, they probably came from Peter himself, which makes it even better when you read this, that Peter suggests that they send up three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he didn't know what else to say, which should have been the first clue. You don't say that. But, you know, this isn't how many of us live our lives. It's okay. We say things when we don't know what else to say. And Peter is one of those. And yet, In spite of himself, Peter says something absolutely profound. Because Peter knows what you and I know. He knows what life is like at the bottom of the mountain. It's not like like life at the top of the mountain, is it? It's not all glory and light and radiance. It's hardship and darkness and pain and disappointment and So for Peter to say, you know, Jesus, I don't know, I'm just spitballing here. Why don't we stay? It's actually a very honest assessment about how life often feels. Like life sometimes is so hard, it's hard to believe that Jesus is this glorious. I mean, I wonder if how long it took for Peter, James, and John to sort of huddle up and say, was that all a dream? Or did that really happen? And what Mark wants us to know, because I suspect we often get ourselves in that same place, like, am I just like tricking myself into thinking that all these things about Jesus are true? Am I just kind of living a, you know, a figment of my imagination? Mark is saying, no, Jesus is this glorious. That's why he can bear the weight of your worship, but it's also why he can bear the weight of your hope. So that when life is hard and dark and there's no glory to be seen, you can still have hope. There are a lot, there are a lot of things about this passage that are tantalizing. I like the fact that Mark is an economical writer because it helps us, you know, we're going to be able to move through this this book in a reasonable amount of time. I don't like the fact that it doesn't tell me what they were talking about, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Do you notice that? They see that they're talking, but, you know, we don't have the the on-the-field mic. You know, we're not picking up the conversation. There's no bad lip-reading going on. Like, we can't... All we know is they were talking. It's like, what were they talking about? Well, you might be glad to know that Luke, the detail-oriented one of the bunch, actually gives us a clue what they were talking about. Because in Luke chapter 9, we have the same story according to Luke. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, he tells us that Elijah and Moses and Jesus were talking about Jesus' departure. And as Luke goes on to say, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, 
you know, the implication there is they were talking about his death, which was going to happen in Jerusalem in the not so distant future. What's even more fascinating about Luke's detail there is the word departure is the word exodus. So here you have Moses who led God's people out of Egypt in the first exodus talking to Jesus about leading God's people in the greater exodus. The first exodus was leading God's people out of physical slavery in Egypt into the promised land. The greater exodus is Jesus leading God's people out of the slavery of sin and bondage of death into eternal joy. But notice, the way that exodus comes about is through his departure, it's through his death. And so when we talk about Jesus bearing the weight of our hope, we have to start with this, that he does so on the cross. In fact, he says that when they're having this discussion later on, starting with verse 9 and following, and they're talking about why did Elijah come and who is Elijah, and Jesus is referring to John the Baptist here um, in, uh, in the last couple verses of our passage. But in the midst of that, he says to them in verse 12, don't you know, because he's already told them once, that the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. He's talking here to his disciples about that departure, that on the cross, Jesus would suffer in our place. He would be pinned to a cross so that we might experience freedom from the penalty and power of sin. He would lead us out of darkness into his marvelous light, or as Colossians 1 says it, it was God who delivered us through Jesus, the greater Moses, out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus bears the weight of our hope because Jesus is the hope that we really can be forgiven. We really can have our sins washed away and separated from us as far as the east is from the west, that Jesus is the promise that God receives us as sons and daughters, those, who he, those whom he delights in. But also, Jesus in this moment, in this critical moment, brings up something else, not just his cross, but also his resurrection. He says to them in verse nine, as they're coming down the mountain, um, don't talk about this with anybody until the son of man has been risen from the dead. And predictably, the disciple said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. But this time, this time, they didn't say that out loud. They just looked at each other and said, we'll talk about that later. Well, one day they would know what he meant because one day he would make good on this promise. He would, three days after hanging on the cross, rise from the grave. But this is what we need to remember about the hope that we have. It is hope that extends beyond this life. Okay, if you haven't thought about it by now, you should be thinking about C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory. If you haven't read C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory, drop everything now, and that Mona Lisa picture, swipe left, and get to, start, just start reading it now, or later on today. Find The Weight of Glory and read it. And uh, the one comment, I was reading it again this week, one comment that he makes reminded me exactly of this part in this passage, because C.S. Lewis says this. He's talking about the way the world offers you um, a remedy for the longing inside of your heart, okay? And he's saying, look, the world is going to tell you that longing inside of your heart, which is a longing for 
the glory of God, it can be satisfied through all sorts of things in the world. And he says, but, but what they don't tell you is that even if you got everything that the world promised you, all the fame, all the success, all the love, uh, all the reputation, all the pleasure, all the money, everything the world promises you will satisfy your heart, even if you had it, as soon as you die, you lose it. He said this is true of every generation. Like, every generation can get the whole world, but as soon as you die, it fades to black. Like, it's gone. And we don't talk about that very much in our culture, do we? We don't have that conversation very often, do we? Jesus is having that conversation right here. He's asking you, what are you building your life around? What glory are you seeking? And will that glory outlive you or not? Because the the glory Jesus offers you is glory that is for this life and for the next. Okay, here's one place we did have that conversation this week. And when you have a cultural conversation like this, the one I'm about to share with you, which many of you probably had already, you should count it as a moment of God's kindness and grace. All right, last Monday night, Some of you were watching Monday Night Football, and so you watched as DeMar Hamlin collapsed Buffalo Bills safety, 24 years old, collapsed on the field after a violent collision, cardiac arrest. Um, Resuscitated on the field, basically, you know, in front of both teams and the whole stadium and a national audience. Understandably, everybody was rattled. um, Lots of well-meaning and, and heartfelt thoughts and prayers for this young man. And thankfully, he's improving. Still in critical condition, but improving. Uh, uh, it's just kind of an amazing story. But what's even more amazing is the cultural conversation. Have you noticed the cultural conversation happening around this? So, you know, sports radio, ESPN, not exactly like a cauldron of deep intellectual thought. <laughs> All right. But it's been this place, we've had this conversation about mortality. It's been incredible. And about spirituality. And the interview that stands out to me, uh, Ben Watson, a retired NFL player and, and, and Christian and commentator in various settings, was on Anderson Cooper uh, on CNN. And they were talking about this. I think this is Wednesday night. And they're talking about this whole incident. And Ben Watson says this. He goes, you know, uh, first of all, he, you know, he offered his prayers and sympathy to the family, rightfully so. And then he said, at the same time, as tragic as this is, it is an opportunity for us to have an important conversation. And the important conversation is, all of us are appointed for a day when we're born, and all of us have a day appointed when we die. That's true of every single one of us. And the conversation we need to have, he's saying this on Anderson Cooper, the conversation we need to have is what happens after you die? And where are you going to spend eternity? And then he said this, but thankfully, we have an answer to those questions in Jesus Christ. Well, that's incredible to be listening to that on CNN, on Anderson Cooper, about a football game, and yet it is exactly the place that this passage takes us. 
Only Jesus is glorious enough to bear the weight of your worship and to bear the weight of your hope which extends beyond this life because only in Jesus are we forgiven, reconciled to God, and given life with him forever. And so what is a manifestation of God's glory here is actually an invitation for you to know him. I want to leave you with this thought. Actually, I want to leave you with this image. The image we have in verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your words of life. Grant us faith that we might believe. Grant us hope that we might endure. Grant us love that we might serve you all the days of our lives. For your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.